from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The secret to flipping your soil. Cover crops and no-till have been branded wrong. Cutting it close. I think that the grain sector um, would really have struggled uh, if, the, if the strike took place. On the verge of a potential rail strike, Congress steps in. Tensions in China come to a head this week. You hear a lot about these COVID lockdowns, right? And zero COVID policy. But we're going to see record beef imports this year. But could it alter U.S. meat's soaring export pace? And in John's world. China may be heading for trouble. Well, now for the news happening right now. The countdown is on for Congress, which is facing two big deadlines. The first to prevent a nationwide rail strike and also avoid a government shutdown. And the effort to avert the freight strike was successful with the president signing the bill on Friday. The bill to avoid the strike won approval Thursday, clearing the Senate in a bipartisan vote. The bill will bind rail companies and workers to a proposed settlement that was reached between the rail companies and union leaders back in September. That settlement was rejected by four of the 12 unions involved, creating the possibility of a strike. The Senate came one day after the House of voting to impose the agreement. Ex-Secretary Tom Vilsack thanking Congress for taking action, saying a rail shutdown would have significant and long-lasting effects on American food and agriculture and would have been devastating to the economy. I think that the grain sector um, would really have struggled uh, if the if the strike took place. Um, obviously, that would have impacted basis levels here uh, in the country as uh, as grain would back up in the system. Um, probably had the potential to shift some export sales uh, to other places in the world. It's estimated a strike would cost the U.S. economy two billion dollars a day in lost gross domestic product. Lawmakers also under pressure to reach a budget deal by Friday, December 16th. If no agreement is reached by then, another stopgap spending measure will be needed. The EPA releasing this week the long-awaited blending levels for ethanol and biofuels. Here's a look at the key numbers. EPA's proposal calls for overall blending mandates of 20.82 billion gallons next year and then a billion more over that number in 2024, followed by more than 22.5 billion in 2025. The news was welcomed by many renewable fuel and farm groups, but officials with Clean Fuels Alliance America says the RFS proposal woefully underestimates biomass-based diesel, adding the proposed volumes are low existing production, undercutting investments in new capacity. The proposal also includes incentives for the use of biogas from farms and landfills and biomass such as wood to generate electricity to charge electric vehicles. It's the first time that EPA has set biofuel targets on its own, instead deferring to Congress. The agency opened a public comment period and will hold a hearing in January. Well, something else some lawmakers and farm groups are scrambling to deal with before the end of the year, an overhaul to immigrant labor. Democratic lawmakers say the current bill they're working on could provide a path to U.S. citizenship for one million farm workers, as well as create a more reliable labor force to farmers in need. But the Democrats are racing to get it through Congress before Republicans take control of the House in January. Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said he would not support any bill to extend immigrant work visas without first addressing border security. 
The Department of Transportation handing down its ruling on federal driving time regulations for truckers. Farm groups have been working with the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration agency for months to allow additional time on the road for truckers transporting livestock to make them exempt from some hours of service rules. But the agency denied the request, saying it wouldn't meet an acceptable safety level for drivers. However, farm groups say it doesn't take into consideration the well-being of the animals being transported and will put a burden on producers. The National Cattlemen's Beef Association says it will continue to look at any possible legal or congressional recourse. Well, the U.S. is threatening legal action against Mexico's plan to ban imports of genetically modified U.S. corn in 2024. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack traveling to Mexico this week to meet with Mexico's president about it, along with other issues. Vilsack saying they need to find a way forward soon. He emphasized that without an acceptable resolution, the U.S. government will be forced to consider all options, including enforcing legal rights under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. He said they made it clear Mexico's import ban would cause both massive economic losses for the Mexican ag industry, as well as place an unjustified burden on U.S. farmers. But he said progress was made during the talks, and they expect a proposal from the Mexican government soon. All right, that's it for the news. When we come back, severe weather sprawled across the south, snow also hitting the north. We'll get a check of weather next. And how would you like to see these amazing items under your Christmas tree? You can sign up now to enter the Case IH holiday giveaway that we are hosting. Each winner will get a Case IH prize pack and one lucky winner will be drawn each day from Monday, December 19th through Friday, December 23rd. Those winners will be announced on Ag Day. Then the grand prize winner will be announced right here on U.S. Farm Report on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. They'll win a Farm All Seat Pedal tractor. How amazing would that be? To enter, head to the website on your screen, caseihholidaygiveaway.com. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. The new 1200 series big dog forage boxes now feature new heavy-duty dual gearbox driven apron chains and are available in 26 and 30-foot models. Find out more about the big dog boxes at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik. Matt, talk about some wild weather this week. We're still trying to grasp the extent of that devastating damage left by the more than 30 tornadoes reported across the south. But does the pattern look to be calmer next week? Yeah, Tyne, it looks like as we head through the next week, things are going to become a little bit more active in the north and west part of the United States. The south, though, will get more rain. It looks like the severe weather aspects might be down to a minimum, though, at least for now, something we'll have to continue to keep an eye on. But I wanted to start out with our drought monitor because we haven't seen many changes, actually a little bit in uh, in the way of drier conditions popping up in parts of the mid-south and deep south. Now, we did have rain with this system with that brought the severe weather last week and some of that not factored into this round of data, but will be in next week's round of data. Meanwhile, through the middle of the country, still continuing to dry out again, needing that moisture for winter wheat crop there in the middle of the country and the northern uh, tier as well. Still extreme to exceptional drought and still very dry back into the west, but more moisture there over the weekend, kind of shoring up some of that snowpack and we'll see a little bit more of rain and mountain snow back there in northern California as we head through Monday. There'll be another system 
moving through the uh, really the Rockies there, bringing higher elevation snow and some uh, rainfall as well. And then another warm front starting to break some showers out along uh, really the mid south and heading towards the Gulf Coast as well. Staying chilly though up towards the north as as we head towards Wednesday, that first system starts to move its way on through cooler air filters into the middle of the country and then another cold front will bring in some colder air from the north. It starts to dry out in the west, but we keep those showers possible across the center part of the country and into the mid south. Then as we head towards Friday, something we got to keep an eye on here towards the end of the week, depending on the track and high pressure, how strong that is to the north. We got to keep an eye on this storm because the cold air will be there and there'll be some moisture coming in from the south. All depends on who sees what rain, snow, maybe even a little bit of mixed precipitation. Something we'll have to keep an eye on as we head towards Thursday and Friday. Another system, though, could bring some rain and mountain snow into the west. Now, this jet stream is going to look very active. It's colder up to the north, much warmer in the south, which is where that temperature trend is going to be for this week. But you can see another upper low bringing in some more moisture to the west as we head through this weekend. That's going to keep it cooler in the west, but also more active. So you can see temperatures this week much below normal across the north and into parts of the west and much above normal down across uh, really the Gulf Coast and into parts of the mid south and then the precipitation. It's going to be much of the same. We're going to be active back in the northwest northern California there and then that storm track for this week is going to be right across the center part of the country through the mid south and up into the mid Atlantic and then for next week the cooler air stays intact up to the north and and this is going to bring in some warmer air again to the south. That's where we get those battle of the seasons, and we could still be looking at more rain in the south, maybe some more rain and mountain snow back in the west. Something will continue to track time. Thanks, Matt. Well, what caught the attention of the markets after the Thanksgiving holiday? Jim McCormick and Sam Hudson break it all down. We talk markets right after the break. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Sam Hudson and Jim McCormick joining us. All right, a lot of news in the markets this week, whether it be the rail situation or China or also exports overall. But Sam, what was the markets, markets focused on? What caught the attention of traders this week? Well, coming into it, you know, there were plenty of headlines uh, that I would kind of refer to as noise. But the only thing that we could really definitively trade is the fact that uh, we've seen soybean demand remain much more current compared to corn. Uh, obviously, exports uh, on corn are just floundering. I think we have to expect a you know reduction in that uh, from USDA here next Friday. Uh, but, it, you know, just the fact that we've seen that steady stream of beans. And like I said, we're current. Uh, we're getting to the end of the year here. We've seen an improvement in basis. Uh, I think that could start to backtrack now. And then we could see a little, little bit of pressure on the spreads. Uh, but uh, going into, you know, first notice day here for the December contracts, I think that was another thing, too. I think uh, open interest for these markets is going to be something to note uh, after those December contracts go on off the board. But we'll have to see if there's a catalyst that's, uh, to really facilitate everyone wanting to get back on the boat. Yeah, Sam mentioned that USDA report that we'll have next week. I mean, typically the December report, not much news out of that. I mean, we're really focused on the January report where we get those year in numbers. Jim, could this year be different? I think in general time, the US for the US numbers are going to pretty much punt. They're going to reprint the November numbers. I do think you'll see a little bit of revision of the South American crop. I would expect the Brazilian crop to get a little bit bigger and maybe the Argentina crop to get a little bit smaller as the market, uh, you know, as they try to adjust for the weather problems. But in general, this report is going to be a non-event. We're going to race right back to look at what the January number is going to be, as well as the quarterly stocks number. When you look at exports overall and what's going on in China, 
You know, there's talk that we're going to see China loosen restrictions. We saw the impact of protests across the country this week. Sam, I mean, with the export picture overall, is there concern about China and maybe those those policies won't be loosened enough? Well, well, there's uncertainty in general, but at the end of the day, you know, the weather in South America, the Southern Hemisphere is really going to dictate overall price direction. I think what we're talking about here is how much demand can we garner between now and when they actually start harvest. Uh, you know, with with stocks to use here in the, in the U.S. under 5%, there's just not a lot to give. So uh, you can have those concerns long term, but ultimately the market's going to be underpinned to a certain degree until we actually get to that point. We see more bushels flowing or actually see, uh, you know, evidence of, of, of demand truly slowing. From all the protests and pushback that we've seen, though, I, I would err on the side that uh, we see them slowly reopen. I don't think it's going to be a complete wave. Uh, you know, part of this is a, is a PR thing for them, too, just as well. Well, with U.S. dollar that's been holding pretty strong, are we priced out of the market for some of these export countries? I mean, is that the issue that we're seeing right now with corn, Jim, or is it something else? Well, right now, I think the big thing is it's the higher dollar is hurting us as well. It's just uh, Brazil, um, Argentina, and both the Ukraine as well with the export quarter. We are the most expensive product in town in the world at the moment. The weaker dollar, as it's making new lows uh, this past week, should help bring on a little bit of demand. But that is our biggest problem is a higher currency level and just uh, cheaper you know, products. But we do believe we'll get a little bit more competitive on the U.S. corn market, specifically export-wise, as we move into 2023. That traditionally is when we do market more corn. I will want to make one note, Tyne. I am a little bit leery about the Chinese. They bought a lot of beans from us. But remember, we have this trade war going on. The Biden administration has ramped up that trade war by blocking the technology sale of chips and that technology to the Chinese. They really haven't been happy about it. They haven't pushed back by it. I am a little bit leery that we will walk in one day and we'll find out the Chinese have canceled bean purchases and move those demand down to South America as a way to retaliate for those uh, you know, ratcheting up of the trade tension. So it's something I think you need to keep an eye on. Sam, if that would happen. Are we in a different situation than we did see that trade war a few years ago? Or do you think we would just see soybean prices slide immediately? Well, you know, the weather has to be the scapegoat, right? They're not going to really pull that card. And as you mentioned, I would fully agree with him in terms of the risk long term. Uh, but they can't pull that card, card unless they know they have it. We're all expecting this big, you know, four to six million acre uh, increase in South America. Everyone's expecting that already. It's already kind of written down, but now they have to prove that. If they start to do that, then I think uh, you could see some some sparring, some jabbing as you get into you know the second quarter of next year. But between now and then, uh, we're still going to have to serve the market. And, and we've continued to see soybean movement prioritized to that of corn because of barge freight and, and uh, several other factors. As we get into spring, as Jim mentioned, I think that could... Uh, you know, help corn a little bit. If we can get some rings in these rivers March, April again, we could get some of our exports back between now and then. It just uh, it looks like it's going to be a tough road. Well, speaking of freight, there were some questions about transportation, especially with the rail situation. So we'll get into that as well as interest rates, what the Fed said this week and how that could impact the markets overall. We'll talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Farmer to Farmer, the Conservation at Work video series features real stories, real successes, real quick. See what's possible at farmers.gov conservation. Well, China may have plans to loosen its strict COVID restrictions after nationwide protests this week, but is China in trouble? Here's John Phipps. It's hard to ignore news coverage of China. I try not to talk too much about events there, 
But America's continuing unfamiliarity with China's culture, history, and economy make it hard to avoid. But lately, I've noticed more unsettling problems for the now second largest nation to the point, I think, despite their skills and accomplishment, China is in trouble or at least headed for it. The major reason is Xi Jinping. He simply picked the wrong moment to go full dictator. Exhibit A is the government policy of zero COVID, which matches up with his Iron Man political image, but displays remarkable ignorance of the disease and more importantly, his own citizens. Natural forces don't respect arbitrary absolute limits. Zero COVID appeared a good idea until economic trade-offs became clear. Meanwhile, China's domestic vaccines were significantly less effective than the Western versions Xi arrogantly refused to buy. The painful experiences of Chinese lockdowns are fresh in public memory. When new variants of COVID trickled in and infection numbers rose, citizens who had previously grudgingly accepted and endured lockdowns started pushing back and voting with their feet, fleeing to unaffected areas before roadblocks went up an understandable fool-me-once type reaction. This ensures those lockdowns will be less effective. Xi's boasting of China's lower infection and death rates because of zero COVID policies leaves him little room to abandon or loosen restrictions without losing face just when he's aiming to reach Mao-like status. The Chinese economy was already struggling to grow, manage enormous debts, revive a morbid real estate sector, and cope with intensified trade friction around the globe. Now it will be lucky to muddle along with very modest improvement, let alone dodge a recession. The persistence of COVID there will affect the entire world to some degree. For instance, U.S. farmers have come to realize China isn't just a grain buyer, but a machinery parts supplier. Unlike China, however, other countries have considerable flexibility and cooperative partners and can modify public policy to balance economic and public health threats. Few global leaders are as insulated from their citizens as China. Xi not only narrowed his choices for political reasons at the wrong time, he didn't read the room. Thanks, John. And you can hear more of John's commentary with the QR code on your screen. And we'll take a deeper look at China in our Farm Journal report coming up. Well, when we come back, we're paying a visit to Machinery Pete. That's because Tractor Tales is next. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're off to Kansas again to check out an Alice Chalmers 200. Well, this is a 200 Alice. They were made from 72 to 75. This is a 73 model. It's low hour, 1600 hours, just a little over 1600 original hours. Those are original, original rear tires that came off the assembly line with BF Goodrich. I mean, yeah, they're cracked and don't look like much, but we're talking 1973. It, it's a pretty tight tractor. I mean, the three point on it and everything where it wears. Uh, is really tight. Oh, you feel pretty good because you, you know, crack that throttle up there about 15, 1600 and you can hear that turbo starting to sing, that little singing deal on the turbo. And, and you, man, if you crack it, it just, it's real responsive. I mean, that's not a lot of cubic inches compared to 
like the Minneapolis or the, or the Case, I mean, 301's not a lot of cubes, but with that turbo on there, with that boost, it's, it's perky. It's really a perky tractor. The power director transmission. Uh, this one doesn't have, this one's still got the old style uh, power takeoff on it. You have to stop and put the power takeoff in, kind of like it came up with a what? WD, WD45, D17, the whole deal where you, you kick it out for your live power. But I think it was an option. Live power was an option on these 200s, but this one doesn't have it. Thanks, Greg. Still to come, mass chaos unfolded across China this week as the strict COVID restrictions sparked protests. But what's the longer term impact possibly on meat demand? That's our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, the images and video from protests in China this week made their way around the world. John Phipps looked at what he called China's unsettling problems in John's world earlier in the show. But as protests did break out, it also brought into question if the outcome could alter China's policies longer term. So could it also alter the outlook for protein demand? That's this week's Farm Journal report. Tensions over China's zero COVID policy seemed to come to a head this week. As protests spread throughout China, it was the largest show of public defiance against the Communist Party in more than 30 years. But by midweek, the countrywide concerns seemed to spark change as two giant cities were among the 24 high risk areas that would see those COVID policies finally lift. And that was also good news for U.S. meat exports. You hear a lot about these COVID lockdowns, right, and the zero COVID policy and how people can't move around, the restrictions, restaurants closing, but we're going to see record beef imports this year. Joel Hager is the vice president for Asia Pacific with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. He says China continues to show a hunger for U.S. grass-fed beef. They have this program or this idea, this philosophy of, you know, becoming more self-sufficient. But the numbers are really showing the opposite. Hager says the numbers show in 2021, China had record grain, meat, and poultry imports. This year will be slightly down from last year's crazy numbers, but still uh, very high. And the, the, you know, the trend is for more food imports. And that's why he sees continued growth for U.S. meat exports for now. Do they want to reduce their dependence on food imports? Yes. But I think, I think they'll take a pragmatic approach. And then you have this consumer base that's getting used to having uh, uh, access to imported foodstuffs. So it's, uh, you know, it's gonna be challenging. But I, I, think in the, I, I, mean, I think in the short run, it still looks positive for meat imports and especially for U.S. products. Randy Block of Cattle Facts is watching the robust hunger for U.S. meat unfold globally. If you look at demand curves in here, Global beef demand is at the highest level on record here in 2022. He says that's happening despite beef demand in the U.S. tapering off a bit compared to the historic demand the past two years. And a key piece of 2022's success is the exports. In fact, we've gone through and calculated what the value proposition would be in the 
for every pound of beef that we export, we, get a, we generate about 60 cents a pound more on what we export versus what we import. You bring that all back to a value proposition to the U.S. industry, and export values nearly $500 ahead this last year here in 2022. While a shrinking cattle herd in the U.S. could curb the volume of exports over the next few years, Block thinks meat exports will moderate but not see a sharp drop in 2022. Our guess is we'll see a 2-3% decline in export activity in 2023 and probably a moderation yet in 2024. And one area where the U.S. still has the upper hand is in high-quality beef. The U.S. produces 70-75% of all of that high-quality protein or beef in the, in the global marketplace. Block thinks competition could grow from countries like Australia, which is rebuilding its herd after being hammered by drought. But one area that the U.S. could help serve up new demand is in e-commerce, especially in the Asia area. I mean, COVID, the pandemic really supercharged that. But, you know, five years ago, uh, a family may have just tried to order some beef online just more as a novelty, but now it's almost like an everyday item. As the popularity of e-commerce for food shopping explodes in the Asia-Pacific region, USMEF's Jihai Yan says the country that's the most advanced in e-commerce right now is Korea. They actually can buy anything, even if the fresh steak or ice cream or fresh vegetable through e-commerce that will be delivered uh, early in the morning on the next day and even at the cheaper price. In the past 20 years, per capita meat consumption in Korea alone has grown 60%, and that's largely due to eating more beef and chicken. And with a strong U.S. dollar today, she says Korean shoppers are still wanting to buy that U.S. meat. Considering the uh, low self-sufficiency rate for overall food items in Korea, everything is expensive. So if the, uh, they are the pinched with the uh, tight budget, they cut down the fruit first and then vegetable, seafood, and the meat is the last one they cut down the uh, spending. Now we will get an updated look at meat exports next week, but the latest data from USMEF showed po pork exports continue to post progress around the globe while beef exports did cool a bit in the latest report. All right, when we come back, our marketing roundtables dig back into interest rate hikes and what that could mean on all commodities. We'll take a look at that when we come back. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Jim McCormick as well as Sam Hudson joining us again. All right, Jim, when you look at interest rates, the Fed this week saying that, you know, the rate hikes will continue, but will be at a slower uh, pace than we have seen in the past. So when you look at that rhetoric, did it make did it give confidence to the market or did it make the markets a little bit more more nervous considering we could continue to see some of these hikes? All right. Now, if you look at the equity market reacted to it, I think overall you could argue it definitely gave the equity market some confidence. But I think if you're a producer out there, you've got to realize the cost of money is getting a lot more expensive today, Tyne. And uh, that's going to change your balance sheet dramatically. I mean, you're used to free money. Now you're looking at farm loans somewhere around seven and a half, eight percent to put that operating note into 2023. It's only going to get more expensive. The Fed raises rates, just not as fast as we thought. So it's something I think it will have kind of a negative impact on the balance sheets of producers. So it's something they really need to uh, talk to their bankers about. 
Sam, you're looking at locking in inputs. You're looking at higher costs with that across the board. So is there some things that a producer needs to be thinking about with their marketing plan in order to kind of have that be an insurance of sorts? Yeah, in fact, it's a great lead into 2023 is the rate discussion because there's a lot of farmers that are able to pay down debt, kind of get current uh, on other liabilities at this point. But if you don't go out there, really the only way to prevent yourself from getting uh, loaned back out there at a higher interest rate here a year or two, three years down the road is to go out there and, and, and make some forward sales. As you mentioned, many do have at least some of their inputs locked in. Uh, it, it's still always going to be somewhat of a moving target until we you know, get to next summer and what we know we've put into the crop. Uh, but have a pretty good idea of where those inputs uh, you know, lie and, and beans especially. Uh, I've seen a dramatic increase in terms of the cost of production there. And unless you can write in 80 bushel an acre, you know, $14 beans for, for next year uh, don't look too shabby in terms of getting a marketing uh, plan started. Looking at some other news this week, EPA uh, looking like, you know, they're, they're recommending a boost in biofuel blending volumes, also incorporating using biofuels possibly to charge electric vehicles. That would be something new in the RFS. But you look at renewable fuel standard in general, ethanol demand in general right now, Jim, do you think that continues to be a positive or is 2023 maybe where we see that kind of tip a little bit? Well, I think time in general, it's, it is positive. I think the biggest problem we got right now is it wasn't, you know, they, they're not really pushing the really big increase in these mandates to into 24 and 25. And I think that is going to be a little bit negative psychology wise for the market in general near term. But in the long run, we're very optimistic, especially this renewable diesel. I think it's very attractive in the fact that, you know, when we got ethanol into the system, the oil, big oil is biting us all the way through. That is the reality of it. Um, they're all in on this renewable diesel. It's a drop in uh, oil or, you know, in energy component for the energy system. And uh, I think in general, you got to be very optimistic of it. And I think that's a good sign because in the long run, I think we are going to lose some of our export demand to the Brazilians. And I think this renewable diesel, uh, the crush capacity increasing like we're projected over the next couple of years will help offset that. Sam, do you think that could alter anything when you look at some of the, the, the outlooks that USDA will put out in upcoming reports when it comes to, to, to feed and residual use? It's possible. You know, I don't think we're going to see any major you know, tuning there just yet. I think this is kind of a outlay of what we're, you know, typical and, and used to seeing from EPA. And, and that is that, you know, they're going to, they bump some of these projections, which was well expected. But as you mentioned, they, they come right in the side door with some of these uh, EV credits and just robbing Peter to, uh, to pay Paul. And unfortunately, the ethanol, you know, is, is the Peter of the energy sector, I think. And, and, and so, you know, what that looks like long term, you know, short term, I think we got a, a good, you know, profitable, you know, market here on the spot market because of what fuels have done. Question is, is what is the longevity of that as we get into the back end of next year, if we have a good crop in the U.S., I think you're going to look at uh, some more challenges for ethanol, again, just from the profitability standpoint. Um, but I agree 100 uh, percent, you know, on the biodiesel side of things. I think there's plenty, plenty of room to grow there and probably more growth potential on that side as a percentage than even on ethanol. All right, Jim, it looks like crisis averted late in the week. It looks like Congress will step in with this this rail strike. Bottom line, though, it's had a lot of people on edge. So are our transportation issues that we've been talking about, are we in the clear? Or do you think there are still some caution signs when it comes to this impressive basis that we've had in spite of it all? The basis, it's going to be really interesting. I think the biggest problem we're going to see right now, Tyne, is we got to get some moisture in the upper Midwest where we can get these rivers flowing. Uh, you know, the barges just aren't able to move at full capacity. And that is, uh, you know, driving up the cost of shipping. And that's going to help keep us a little bit uncompetitive on the international market. So uh, we're going to see some, you know, interesting moves in the basis here and there as the market tries to bid for grain or try to drop when they really don't need the grain due to the lack of competitive bids. 
All right, Sam and Jim, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We need to take a quick break and then we'll be back with much more U.S. Farm Report this weekend. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Looking for the next big yield breakthrough? Then look to Pioneer. By combining industry-leading R&D with rigorous local testing, what's next happens here at Pioneer. Sustainability, climate-smart agriculture, carbon sequestration, those are all buzzwords in agriculture right now, but they all start with soil health. Michelle Rook looks at how farmers can get started. Mother Nature always wins, and farmer and agronomist Mitch Hora is helping other farmers find success by taking her cues when it comes to applying the principles of soil health on their land. Just keep that in mind that we're trying to get the outcome of healthier soil, more resilient soil, and we got to do that by minimizing disturbance, chemical and physical, keep armor on the soil, keep a living root as much as we can, get as much diversity into the system as possible, maybe integrate livestock back out onto the land, and most importantly, do this all in the context of your farm. To flip your farm soil, Hora recommends approaching soil health offensively. Cover crops and no-till have been branded wrong. They've been branded as defensive management tools, defense against erosion, defense against water quality problems, but really to actually make these systems work, that cover crop is my offensive tool. It's my nutrient stabilizer, it's my herbicide program, it's my moisture management program, it's my soil building program, it's my resiliency program, so many offensive things. Hora reminds farmers that healthy soils are alive and home to billions of microbes that are actually farming the crop and providing it vital nutrients needed for higher yields. One teaspoon of this healthy soil, more than eight billion microbes. And those microbes gotta eat, they eat carbon simple sugars. And that carbon, those simple sugars, come from plant root exudates, which are pumped into the ground via photosynthesis when there's a living plant. However, with the growing season spanning only a few months, crops don't grow long enough to build adequate levels of carbon in the soil. It's not very much food to feed those microbes for the off-season, and a lot of them die out. We're not able to build up those communities and get the benefit back to us. That benefit being nutrient cycling, water management, building aggregate structure, building up that ability for water holding capacity, storing stable carbon, building organic matter. Horace says that's where cover crops come in. The key is you gotta feed the system. And Mother Nature's way of feeding the system is living roots. That's why when there's not living roots, she puts weeds out here. And microbial communities only build over time. So once built, Horace's Mother Nature requires armor to protect that resource via a no-till system. But that's also why we can't just disturb them then. If you're building them up and then you just destroy their home with tillage or with over-application of fertilizers, well, I mean, what good are we really doing? Once those microbes are working, Horace says they'll provide a direct return on investment. I'm not gonna have to spend money on herbicide and on the fertilizer and everything else because it's gonna come naturally from my system. And that's why on our farm, we've been able to decrease our inputs as much as we have and put those dollars right back to our bottom line. We've gotta focus on profitability and long-term resiliency here on the farm. I really think these soil health systems are the way to do it. And at the same time, create a better impact on the environment. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle. Well, how do you explain crypto as a currency? John Phipps joins us for customer support next. A problematic guide to cryptocurrency. 
U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Nutrien Economics. From general inquiries to in-depth fertilizer questions, Economics is your go-to source for all your farming questions. Find your answers at Nutrien-Economics.com. Well, cryptos have seen a bit of a collapse lately. It's a complex currency and one John tries to explain in customer support this week. From regular correspondent Brad Johnson in North Dakota. If in your travels you come across a truly useful explanation of cryptocurrency and all its mysteries, please share it with all of us incredible idiots. I am missing everything about it. Thanks, Brad. And none of us are idiots if we don't get crypto. I've been working for over a year to build an ag explainer on crypto basics with little headway, even after books and podcasts and articles. The recent crypto collapse proved that to be largely a waste of time. While cryptocurrencies are based on the reasonable innovation of blockchain, that arguably useful aspect has been overwhelmed by beanie baby-like speculation. So here is my problematic guide to cryptocurrency. First, always remember money is stuff that we believe is money. It follows the Tinkerbell rule. If you don't believe in it, it will die. Crypto, as FTX uh, fiasco demonstrated, was unregulated. In fact, FTX was revealed was little more than a Ponzi scheme. Regulation encumbers but legitimizes business discouraging both panic and booms, while lack of regulation endangers investors by inviting fraud. If you can't explain it, don't invest in it, no matter how attractive the reward may seem. This chart might be helpful for perspective. If you'd invested the same amount in Bitcoin or in an S&P index fund in 2017, the result to date would be about the same. Looking at the difference in volatility, however, suggests crypto is more attractive for gamblers than investors, although that can be a murky distinction. That said, the chance of the entire stock market going to zero is significantly less than Bitcoin doing the same. Crypto has probably affected the farmland boom, not among non-farm investors who've never driven that market, but among farmers as it reinforced for us the unparalleled safety of land as a form of wealth. Crypto solved a non-existent problem and created a real one. Our traditional finance system works okay. You can tell by how little we worry about the safety or liquidity of our money. Crypto also has a dirty little secret. It uses the same amount of electricity to create or mine bitcoins as the entire nation of Argentina uses. People should be free to invest in crypto, but non-investors should be held harmless from that activity. Finally, I believe the crypto sector is best characterized by the noted moral philosopher W.C. Fields. It is morally wrong to allow a sucker to keep his money. All right, when we come back, it's a holiday giveaway. We have all the festive details next. Well, next week marks one year since the rare December tornado tore across Kentucky and Tennessee. It left behind heartache and devastation just before Christmas last year. And a year later, those emotions are still raw. We are going to highlight a Christmas comeback that's for the record books. So many people came. There were food trucks from all over the United States that were here. And, you know, they had on Santa's hats and they were decorated. 
And it truly was amidst all this rubble and all this heartache, the, a, a true spirit of Christmas, I think, because it's, um, it wasn't at that point, except for children, about presents. It was about that spirit that was within us and then we were receiving it so much from people who came to help. The next weekend, Clinton Griffiths and I will be in Mayfield, Kentucky, ground zero of the tornado damage last December. We'll walk you through the work that's been done, rebuilding that's taken place, and how the community came together in a remarkable way. It's a Christmas comeback special that you won't want to miss. That happens next weekend. And speaking of Christmas, December will be one to remember as we kick off our Case IH holiday giveaway this year. I mean, look at these. How would you like to see those amazing items under your Christmas tree. Well, you do have a chance because each winner of our giveaway will get a Case IH prize pack. One lucky winner will be drawn each day from Monday, December 19th through Friday, December 23rd. Those winners will be announced on Ag Day. Then the grand prize winner will be announced right here on U.S. Farm Report for a Christmas special on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And do you know what? You will win that grand prize winner will win a Farmall C pedal tractor. To enter, just head to the website on your screen. That's caseihholidaygiveaway.com. It's a December to remember and one you'll want to be part of. So make sure to enter for that giveaway. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you for watching. Be sure to join us next weekend for that special edition Christmas comeback as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.